tuning in to our Neighborhood Church podcast. Join us on Sunday at any of our locations. To learn more about our church, visit neighborhoodchurch.com or download our church app. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Steve Ellis. I'm one of the recycled elders here at uh, Neighborhood Church, and I get to share the word again with you this morning. This is like twice in four weeks. I mean, you'd think I would just recently retired or something. I don't know. But it is always good to be with you and to look into the word of God together. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in Psalm 110 today. So if you want to turn there in your Bible or on your iPad or your Bible app, whatever it is you use to follow along in the scripture, that'll help get us started. Uh, The verses, most of them will be up on the screen, but I think it helps to have something in front of you, doesn't it? There are plenty of good Bible apps these days, so there are lots of ways you can access God's Word. There's also an outline in your worship folder with some fill-in-the-blanks if you're into that sort of thing, and um, if you want to make some notes. Psalm 110 is one of the shorter psalms that we're going to be surveying in our series, Experiencing God Through the Psalms. But it is also one of the richer texts. Psalm 110 is a royal, messianic psalm that in seven short verses lays out the present position, purpose, and power of our risen Lord, proclaiming him as the divine king in verses one to three, as our great high priest in verse four, and as the righteous judge in verses five to seven. In his closing words to his disciples, just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. All means all. And that's all all means. We're going to see that truth expressed here in Psalm 110. And that is a reality that should give us great comfort this morning, because God is good all the time, all the time. He is large and in charge. Charles Spurgeon said that the sovereignty of God was the pillow upon which he laid his head to rest at night. That's what allowed him to sleep well in a crazy, mixed up world, often often a hostile world. To, to know that God has a purpose in mind for you and me, that he has an immutable, irrevocable plan that he's working out in our lives. You know, the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, verse 18. You and I are the church. It's us, it's people, it's not a building. And what God is building in you, in us, the very powers of hell cannot withstand. Do you know that? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And it is the Lord's perfect wisdom in combination with his perfect love that assures us He has good things in mind for you and me. 
John 14, 3, 1 Corinthians 2, 19. But it is his perfect sovereignty, his absolute authority that assures us those purposes are invincible. There is no obstacle he cannot overcome, no challenge he cannot work through in bringing his plans to pass for you and me. The Lord is with us. He goes before us. He prepares the way and brings about his good and acceptable and perfect will for our lives in his time. You know, we, we could spend, truthfully, hours looking at these seven verses in Psalm 110. We don't, we don't have hours. We only have about 25 minutes, so we better get to it. But uh, will you stand with me, and, and let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this morning. Father God, I, just, I, I am just humbled and so grateful to be able to share this amazing passage about our divine king, our great high priest, and just your, just your awesomeness, Lord. It is beyond our comprehension. Lord, as we, as we consider your words this morning, we just ask that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, comfort, settle our anxiety, give us peace, and open our eyes, illuminate our minds that we might be able to see something new that you have for us this morning. In your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 110 is what the scholars would call a Davidic psalm. It, it probably says that right there in your Bible, a psalm of David. It's one of his. King David, moved upon by the Holy Spirit, wrote these words for us to hear today. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now notice when the, Lord, the word Lord uh, first appears in that sentence in your English Bible, it's, it's all capitalized, the Lord. That is the English representation of the name Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the, the four consonants that the Jewish scribes recorded for us, which first appear in Exodus 3.14, where the Lord says to Moses, tell them I am sent you. I am that I am, the one who is and continually will be. The self-existent, eternal, all-sufficient, holy one. I am. It is Yahweh that said to my Lord, my Adonai. Yahweh said to my Adonai, my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You, you, you got to hold your place right there in Psalm 110 for a second and, and turn over to Matthew chapter 22 and see the occasion where the Son of God being continually challenged by the ruling authorities, the, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the, the Sadducees that together made up the Jewish establishment. And they want him discredited, this, this carpenter from Nazareth who in their minds is going around spreading disinformation. They want him canceled. And the entire final week of his earthly life, he is in the temple every day, 
during the Passover celebration in Jerusalem, and they are testing him. He's being inspected. In, in, in a sense, just, just like a Passover lamb would be inspected. He's being scrutinized, and they want to find a blemish. They want to find fault with him. They want to get him to say something seditious, something they can seize upon to make him look like some kind of insurrectionist, someone not worthy to be king. So they keep challenging him with questions. They think are going to get him in trouble no matter how he answers them. And he handles them one after another. Back at the end of March, we, we went through the parallel passage on this encounter that appears in Mark chapter 12. And we, we saw how first they came at him with the, uh, you know, should we pay taxes question. And, and his response, well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and, the, and the, to God the things that are God's. And then the Sadducees and, and their hypothetical about the resurrection. And then the challenge on the law, the, the greatest commandment inquiry. And the Lord answers all of that rightly. And after he answers all of their questions, he turns to them and says, I've got a question for you. Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, verse 42. Jesus asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He poses a question to these, these men, these brilliant men. These were not chumps, by the way. As a lawyer who, who spent his life, uh, his vocation studying the law, I am, I am humbled by the way these men to whom Jesus posed this question had given their entire life to study to acquiring knowledge and wisdom about the ways of God. In a, in a culture where following in the footsteps of Solomon, wisdom and understanding were the highest aspirations. Not athletic prowess, not, not being an Instagram influencer. The most sought after things in first century Judea were knowledge and wisdom. That's what gave you high standing. And these are the highest achieving pursuers. And they wore their education everywhere they went. You've probably been to a, a graduation ceremony and see the faculty up on the dais with their robes and their hats and their tassels and their sashes. Or, or maybe seen a, a, a ceremony of some of the more re formal religious movements with their you know, vestments and their collars. These guys had that down. Everything they wore was a, was a statement that displayed their learned position. And they're standing there surrounding this 30-something carpenter from Nazareth. And the Lord throws a question to them. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Because they know this is, this is their chief responsibility in studying the Old Testament scriptures. Their business is the coming Messiah. Tell me about the Christ. Whose son is he? Simple question. And they answered it because it's, it's a no-brainer for them. They said, son of David. Everybody there knew the promise that God had made to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16, where God promises your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the prince who would rule forever was going to come from David's line. 
Everybody knew that. In fact, if, if you look at Israel's flag, even today, you'll see that six-point star that they call the star of David. Everybody knows that. So this isn't something they had to struggle with. They, they no doubt answered quickly and probably with one voice, David. And they're probably thinking, what kind of question is that? What, do you think we're stupid? And then the Lord goes, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? And then quotes this psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? In, in what sense could he be David's Lord, his Adonai, if he's just one of his descendants? Unless he is something much more than just one of David's sons. See, that's the real question Jesus is asking. You got to understand Adonai. It means way more than superior, way more than master. It means in every way, a greater one. How can someone who has descended from you, who in a sense um, owes their very existence upon you, they're one of your great, 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 great grandchildren or whatever, how can they be your Adonai? How can they be in every sense greater than you? It doesn't make sense if you understand what Adonai really means. It's a conundrum. A dilemma, one apparently that these scholars up until this moment had not confronted or been confronted by, hadn't thought about it. Verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word. They're like, nor from that day forward, did anyone dare to ask him any more questions? Let's not open up that can again. No more questions. We will lie. We will scheme. We will, we will bribe some false witnesses. We will do anything we need to do to get this guy, but we're not answering him. We're not asking him any more questions. See, Jesus was always three steps ahead of these learned men. He answered all of their questions, but this one question he had for them and he asked them very publicly in the temple, surrounded by the crowds. And, and people in the crowd were no, God, no doubt heard that and are going, yeah, hmm, what, what about that? And these guys will have to deal with that now. These men who, who above all else valued understanding the things of God are now going to have to wrestle with the answer to this question. How is it that David calls this son of David his Adonai? I think it's instructive to see the Lord surrounded by these men he knows are scheming to put him to death. And he's still trying to get them to see. Hey, hey guys, think about this. Still trying to open their eyes. The Lord tells us, in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He's demonstrating that right here. Because there were some in the crowd, 
You know, we, we typically see the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees depicted in popular media as these, you know, sort of smarmy, self-righteous men who are strutting around in their pomposity. And certainly many of them were, but there were some who were true seekers, who really wanted to know the truth. Men like Joseph of Arimathea, men like Nicodemus, I, I, I love the way his character is portrayed in the first season of The Chosen. If you haven't yet watched that video series, this is another shameless plug for The Chosen. Oh, we've got copies in the library. You can check them out. It's, it's really worth your time. But, but Nicodemus, this learned Pharisee, you know, everywhere he goes, he's, he's the great Nicodemus. And, and he tries to play along. But behind closed doors, he... He just really wants to know the truth. He comes to Jesus at night in John chapter three, as we heard from the kids this morning, and says, no one could do the things you do lest he be from God. But, but how can these things be? You can, you can sense the struggle. I was so very blessed. The Lord got to me early. I was a little five-year-old kneeling on the couch in my living room with my elbows on the cushion. And I said, Lord, I believe, save me. You know, all that little five-year-old really knew was Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But that was enough. Because if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart. And in the ensuing 60 years, I have learned so much about this one who loved me enough to die for my sins. But I think about guys like Nicodemus who has lived their whole life seeing the world a certain way and then being confronted by a truth that, that seems to make so much sense and yet challenges everything you thought you knew up until that moment, that confronts you with the possibility that everything you thought was true maybe wasn't the whole story. That's got to just rock your world. There may be some of you wrestling with that question this morning. Who is he? Jesus answered the question thusly when he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. When he said to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world to die for the sins of that world, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The son of God, Jesus, up until the very end, still trying to get them to see. Guys, guys, think about this. Whose son is the Christ? How can he be just David's son if he is Adonai? It's a dilemma. But those of you here this morning, you, you know how that dilemma is solved, right? That dilemma is solved by the way John opens up his gospel in chapter one, when he writes, in the beginning was the word. 
and the word was with God and the word was God. And then a few verses later, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation, the programmer entering his program, God becoming a man to lay down his life for the world he so loved. Jesus is still trying to get them to see. This this very public encounter in the temple, surrounded by crowds of people where Jesus says, hey, hey guys, think about this, and quotes Psalm 110. It had an impact. Psalm 110 becomes the most quoted passage of scripture in all the New Testament writings. It was the closing words of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. The apostle Paul, who who very likely was in the crowd that day, refers to it in Romans 8.34, 14.11, 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 22. It's in chapter 16 of Mark's gospel. Shows up several places in the book of Hebrews, including chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, chapter 12, verse 2, 1 Peter 3.22, and many more. This is by a wide margin the most quoted passage in the New Testament because it tells the story a thousand years before it happened. Because there comes that moment after his resurrection when Jesus gathers his disciples together and tells them, go into all the world and tell this good news to everyone, and he is taken up into heaven. Luke tells us in Acts chapter one, verses nine to 10, that the the disciples were standing around, you know, trying to like look up, get one last glimpse of him as he disappears into the crowd until, you know, a couple of angels have to come along and say, "Uh, come on guys, show's over, Get get to work. I'm going to all the nations. But can you imagine that reunion. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter two, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know, we could take a lesson from the Lord these days where uh, in this age, it's, it's all about my rights, right? My rights. It takes a, a little while to unlearn some of those things. It does. Verse eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, even death on a cross. Jesus obeyed to the death. The father had to hear his son cry out, Father, if there is any way, take this cup from me. The father had to turn his face away as his son bore the sins of the world, hanging naked on a cross, covered in his own blood, and crying out, My God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? Imagine hearing that from your only son. What a reunion that must have been. When the Lord ascended into heaven, there must have been a thunderous ovation of praises we can only imagine. The first work of his advent being completed. It is finished to Telestai. Those were his last words on the cross. And he enters again into the presence of his father. And you know what he heard? This right here. Sin and death have finally been defeated. And the father says, have a seat. Have a seat. Here's the scepter, verse two. Rule in the midst of your enemies until I make them your footstool. My beloved brothers and sisters, this is not something we are waiting for. He has the keys to death and Hades. The grave is empty and the throne is occupied. The Lord Jesus reigns as our divine king. There is no other. Yes, yes, there is still evil in the world. Yes, there, there is still opposition. I know that. Yes, there are still stumbling blocks. You know, Jesus tells that parable in Matthew chapter 13, where he says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who, who sowed good seed in his field. But while his workmen were sleeping, the, the enemy came and sowed tares, weeds among the wheat. So when the, when the plants sprung up and began to bore grain, the, the weeds showed up also. And his servant said, Master, do you want us to go and, and, and rip it all out and start over? And he said, no, now let it grow. We'll sort it all out at the end. Our Lord reigns even in the midst of his enemies, even in the midst of all the chaos, all authority, he says. And I have to tell you, it is impossible for us to conceive how truly sovereign and mighty the Lord is today. Philippians chapter two tries. Uh, Paul tells us in verses nine to 12 that because of his obedience and humility, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But people, that doesn't even really begin to capture it. Because whatever image you can conjure up in your mind about the supreme authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, I can assure you, the reality is bigger. It's bigger. There is a picture in Revelation chapter 19 of the Lord at his second coming, appearing with, with many diadems, crowns on his head, and they're like stacked up, sovereignty upon sovereignty upon sovereignty, authority upon authority upon authority, exponentially supreme. He wears every crown you can think of and then some. And it says in that same passage, 
He has a name written that no one knows but him. His authority is incomprehensible to us. We call him the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the Mighty One, but he is so far beyond even all of that. There's not even a word for it. He has a name that no one knows. He is in a class all by himself. He is in the company of one. And when we get to heaven and see him seated at the right hand of God, it will be a jaw-dropping experience. He said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That transaction has already occurred. And any authority that anyone has here on earth is simply delegated authority. It comes down from him. And it is when we live in submission to his purposes, when we allow him to reign in the reality of our lives and quit trying to run, that's when life aligns. That's when we experience peace. Verse three brings us into the picture. Your people the ones he died for, the ones he redeemed in holy garments, the spotless bride of Christ, because he has all authority. He is able to perform what it says in Romans chapter eight, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified in holy garments. And here there is an image of Christ's power and strength. It never wanes. The womb of the dawn, that's a reference to the earliest part of the day. You know when you get up and you have that first cup of coffee and you're you're ready to take on the day? It's going to be like that all the time. Like Christmas morning every day. And if you've ever gone out in the morning and seen the dew watering the ground, it's everywhere. On every blade of grass. And indeed, he calls us from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we will freely serve him. Psalm 100, serve the Lord with gladness. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His his loving kindness, his chesed is everlasting. and His truth endures to all generations. Then in verse four, we have a picture of the Lord as our great high priest. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this verse this morning, but here in verse four, we see the Lord swears an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Verse one was a divine declaration, an official pronouncement. The Lord says, the Lord declares. In fact, I like the way the Holman Standard Bible translated verse one. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. This is the declaration of Yahweh to my Adonai. The Lord declares. Verse four is not a declaration. Verse four is an oath. And it will never change, ever. No second thoughts here. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest. Please note, forever. You want to know how our destiny is eternally secure? You want to know how Jesus could say in John 10, verses 27 and 24, 28, my sheep hear my voice and I give them 
eternal life and they will never perish and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand because he is our great high priest forever. If you want to do a deep dive on this guy, Melchizedek, who shows up in Genesis chapter 14 to, and to whom Abram pays tithes, uh, the book of Hebrews, in, in fact, there are five whole chapters, chapters five through 10 in the book of Hebrews that, that talk about the priesthood of Christ and his connection to the order of Melchizedek. And, um, I, you know, I think it's very likely that Jesus was Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, in a pre-incarnate appearance. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, if that sounds familiar. And he shows up as the king of Salem before it was Jerusalem, the king of peace. And, and Hebrews chapter seven talks about how, how the priestly line of Aaron was in Abram, in a sense, when Abram offered tithes to Melchizedek. But what's important for us to know today is that in God's program, the priest was the one who represented sinful man to God. See, the prophet was the one who represented a holy God to sinful man, but it was the priest who made intercession. It was the priest who brought the offering, who mediated, who represented and spoke for the people, kind of, kind of like a lawyer speaks for his client to the judge. And it was the high priest who once a year on the day of atonement was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the sin offering. That heavy veil guarding the Holy of Holies was torn in two when Jesus died. Matthew 27, verses 50 to 51. And now Jesus occupies the position at the right hand of the Father and he is our great high priest who presents us holy and blameless before the Father for ever. Satan brings accusations against God's people night and day, Revelations 12, 10. But the Lord is there night and day. Sorry, already paid for. He is our great high priest forever. And finally, the Lord is presented as our righteous judge. In verses five to seven, we have this picture of the Lord shattering kings littering the earth with corpses and, and scattering chiefs, heads of state, over the entire earth. Ever get mad at your governor? Just wait. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, just, I don't know who the chiefs are specifically that are being referred to here in this psalm. But Psalm 2 has similar imagery with the Lord shattering kings like clay pots with a rod of iron, this mighty scepter we see in verse 2. You know, the Lord Jesus at his first advent held a scepter. He held a rod. It, it was a reed, actually. The same reed that they used to drive that crown of thorns down into his scalp. And they handed it to him. And he held it while they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. When he comes the second time, he won't be holding a reed. It's going to be a rod of iron that shatters everything in its path. The Lord said in John 5.22, all judgment has been given to me. That's part of his authority. And you know, the, the only decision as created beings that we really get to make is when when we will bow and under what 
circumstances. Will you be one who bows before the divine king, our great high priest who gave his life a ransom for many? Or will you be one who bows before the righteous judge when it's too late? Because the one who calls out whosoever will is the one who will sit in judgment over whosoever will not. If I may, let me just leave you with one final thought. There are at least two occasions um, that we know of where the ascended glorified Lord made an appearance. In Acts chapter 9, to Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul on the Damascus Road, and in Revelation chapter 1, to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. And the result was the same in each instance. The ones to whom he appeared ended up flat on the ground, faces in the dust. The Apostle Paul was blinded. John says in Revelation 1, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I fainted. You know, so often when we think of of Jesus, we sort of picture him like the, the actor who plays him in The Chosen, right? Jonathan Rumey, who, who does that so well, by the way. But we do. We think of him as this sort of winsome, engaging, sometimes funny, very approachable guy. And he is all of that. And yet, I want us to read what John saw in Revelation chapter 1 starting with verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Think about that for a second. What was it that Adam and Eve communed with in the garden back in Genesis chapter three? They heard the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. One like a son of man. You you can almost hear it in John's voice here. You can almost hear him saying, you know, I I walked with him for three years. I, I ate with him. We laughed together. And this one, was, was like him. There was a resemblance, but oh man, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire that speaks of judgment. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace that pictures the atonement, the, the brass serpent lifted up in the wilderness, like the brazen altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle where the, the offerings were made, like the brazen labor, laver, that, that sea of bronze uh, filled with water that the priest would wash in before approaching the altar. And his voice was like the roar of many waters, like the waves crashing against the rocks when he speaks. Boom. That same voice that called the whole world into existence. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. 
I am so grateful that I had the privilege of sharing with you this morning this picture of our divine king, our great high priest. Because my brothers and sisters, when, when you are discouraged, when you are afraid, when you think you can't go any further, when it all seems to be unraveling and everything's coming apart at the seams, I want you to remember the image of this one who is for you. Because my beloved, this, this is your Jesus now. Look at your Jesus now. Will you pray with me? Our heavenly father, our gracious Lord and King, our divine supreme ruler, we humbly bow before you and we offer our lives a living sacrifice to you. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Guide us in the good works that you have prepared for us before the foundations of the world. Lord, you are preparing us as the bride of Christ in holy garments to be presented on that day. Spotless. Father, we just praise you and glorify your name this morning. Lift your name high to your glory and our blessing. Amen.